mentioned, this Psalm 1 starts with the word blessed. The, the book of Psalms, 150 of them, are broken up into four books. Book 1, book 2, book 3, book 4. And 26 times in those four books of the Psalms, this word blessed is used. Eight of them in book 1 and 11 of them in book, book 4. So you, just by the sheer uh, data there, you can tell that the overarching umbrella of the Psalms is that you and I and whoever would uh, participate in the worship of Yahweh would live a blessed life. In fact, our Westminster Confession of Faith, the very first question that you have been catechized in from the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So even, you know, thousands of years later, our, the Westminster Divines captured the goal of the Christian life is to live at a heightened state of happiness. Uh, now, when I say that, uh, don't, be, don't, be, don't be misconstrued by happy as like something you can get from a fun dip package that burns off in a couple of hours, right? This is something deep, uh, something, something that is pervasive in life. We oftentimes use the word joy. Some of you may have heard the Oklahoma Sooner softball team uh, in, their, in their press conferences. If you haven't, Google it, it's amazing. And these girls talked about the difference between happiness, as the world would say in circumstances, and true deep joy, a heightened state of happiness. Google it, it's incredible. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about, you know, we all have uh, those moments that where you say, I remember where I was when this happened. And for me, and some of you that were alive then, September 11th, 2001 is one of those moments. I remember exactly where I was and how I felt and even what I smelled and did when those two uh, the Twin Towers in New York were hit by those airplanes. And I remember about 8.35 in the morning hearing about it. I was at King's Chapel Presbyterian Church working on some things for, in Carrollton, Georgia, working on things for campus outreach. I rushed home to see Danielle and we had Sarah and Laura then. And I, Laura was one. I remember just picking up Laura and holding her, watching the broadcast, listening to the telecast, thinking, what kind of world are we growing up in? And what came out of that moment in history was what got labeled, we, we, we moved into a uh, heightened state of emergency. Remember that? And that was, that was broadcast all over. We are in a heightened state of emergency. And what developed from there is we got green, yellow, orange, and red. And every week we were on a new level. And it was going in and out of yellow and red. Uh, if you've traveled recently, you stand in TSA lines for hours because they're making sure that the documents are right and your shoes don't have bombs in them and you don't have anything sharp that might stab a pilot. All of that was the result of a heightened state of emergency. In fact, some of you don't know this, but before 9-11, you could actually walk your loved one to their gate and wave at them as they were walking onto the plane. You can't do that now because of a heightened state of emergency. And so I got to thinking, what if, what if we took the same approach with a heightened state of happiness? How much would the world change? Think about how much the world changed from a heightened state of emergency and fear and anxiety. Well, that's exactly what the Psalms start, is exhorting us to be a people who live at a heightened state of happiness. And that's what he says, blessed 
is the man. So let's talk about that phrase first. What does it mean to be blessed? There are two Hebrew words that predominantly are translated blessed. The one here is, is, is strictly translated happy. But it is a synonym of the main overarching word, which has to do with God's pouring out of his provisions and prosperity to do his will. Let me give you, let me give you a quick catalog. This will resonate with you. Genesis 1. It's the first, first time we see the word the, the, the idea of blessing. God blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I'm gonna unpack that one in just a second. Genesis nine, as Noah and his family are coming off the ark, he repeats that covenantal blessing. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 12, the covenant to Abraham. Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations. Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, who was the promised son of that blessing, who God told him to go sacrifice, takes him up to the mountain, goes to sacrifice him. God says, stop, provides the lamb. He names that mountain the Lord will provide. They walk down from the mountain. God repeats the covenant blessing to Isaac. Be, uh, God bless them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis 27, Jacob steals the blessing by lying to his father. How, how important was this blessing? He lied to get it from Isaac, took it from Esau. Jacob in Genesis 32 is wrestling with God and says to, says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Seeking that blessing, on and on. The benediction that I'll give at the end of the service from Numbers 26 to 24, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. New Testament, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount starts his Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who suffer for, righteous, or suffer for my sake, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, happy are those who do X, Y, and Z. Ephesians 1, blessed be God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And then the book of Revelation, Revelation 1, Revelation 14, Revelation 16, Revelation 19, Revelation 20, Revelation 22, Revelation 27. This is called the seven blessings of Revelation. So from Genesis to Revelation, my point, the overarching umbrella of the scriptures is God wants you to be blessed. We want, God wants us to live in a heightened state of happiness. So let's unpack this a little bit deeper. If you have a Bible there, take it, please, and turn to Genesis 1, 28. I want you to see this wording, because this is, this, I, remember, I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in my Hebrew, uh, Hebrew 2 class with Dr. Mark Fatato, and him unpacking this the, 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 the grammar structure of Genesis 1.28, and it just unleashed so much in me, and I hope it does for you as I, as, I, as I teach this to you. This is the first time where this concept of blessing is given to God's people, Genesis 1.28. This is, this is how the ESV translates it, which is what you have there. It says, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, and go to them. All right, so the, the command clearly in this passage is be fruitful and multiply. It's, a, it's an imperative. God intends for this to happen. You will do this. That's what a command is. But what precedes it is, is who's the onus of responsibility on? All right, it says, and God blessed them 
and God said to them. And this is actually a, a bad translation of that Hebrew phrase. It really, uh, the, some of the other translations that are a little more cumbersome in their translations, like the in New American Standard, say it this way. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? And what they're trying to get at with that participle saying is that God blessed them and the blessing was this command that he gave them. As Martin Furtado said, the more rigid translation should say something like this. God blessed them and ensured that they would be fruitful and multiply. The onus of the command to be fruitful and multiply was fulfilled by God, not by me and you. It's up to God that this happens. That's the way the phrase reads. Because when I read this, it's like, okay, great, I'm a go-getter. I got good strategies. God bless me so I can get busy doing the work which you commanded here, which is be fruitful and multiply. Well, thank goodness that command and its fulfillment is not up to Will Witherington or you or Tate's Creek or the church on earth. It is up to God. And Revelation 5 tells us he did exactly what he promised and commanded here by blessing them when around the throne are people from every nation, tribe, uh, people group saying, worthy is the lamb to receive blessing and power and wisdom on and on. Folks, the idea of blessing is not just Gesundheit, bless you when you sneeze, some kind of well wish. I hope it goes well with you. It is actually the power of God to do exactly what God intends, and that is interwoven with your happiness. This is so liberating. And so when we get to Psalm 1, in the first phrase of the whole book of this worship psalter of Israel is, blessed is the man we should sit up turn our ears on, straighten our backs and say, okay, God, tell me how to do this. I wanna live a life that is at a heightened state of happiness. And the way the Psalmist does it, does it in two ways. He does it in a disassociation. He says, here's what's not to do. And then he does it in an association. Here's what you should do. All right, so let's, let's take both of those next. The second part of verse one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And this is actually a really brilliant teaching technique that some of you have implored. Uh, I had basketball coaches that used to do this. To tell a player what he should not do is as, is as good as telling them what they should do. And one of the best times, I played, I played basketball in college, and one of the best times of the week and the most difficult times of the week was the film session, where you, you, you've just played games and the coach is gonna Rewind the tape and show you uh, the film. And, you know, more times than not, hey, Will, uh, that's not how you box out. Hey, Will, that's not the play that we called. Hey, Will, that's not how you should guard your man. You know, all the knots were like, okay, I got it now. Now I know what to do. So it's a, it's a powerful technique. So what he says is the blessed man is one who does not, and then he gives some parallelism here. Now, there's two ways that this verse, that scholars take this verse and, and talk about it. I'm gonna give you both, because they both are really powerful. One is to see this as sort of a progression into evil. Walking, standing, sitting. And then there's another just that those parallel words are just to grab the totality of how evil works. So let's, let's, let's think about both of them for just a second. Think about this. It's like you're window shopping, right? You're just kind of walking along the store. Oh, that's a nice looking pair of shoes. Oh, now I'm standing and I'm kind of going, man, I'd really like to have those shoes. And before long, I'm in the store paying the 130 bucks for the shoes. Or uh, you've got your cell phone, right? We do this on our cell phone. I'm just browsing. I'm just scrolling. You know, my kids do this and says, like, what are you doing? You can't even see. 
And then I stop and, I, oh, I like that. Yeah. Oh, now I'm commenting and or downloading, right? That progress that we have, that's what he's talking about here. Blessed are men who does not walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, I'm just kind of walking and I'm taking in what the wicked are saying. Now I'm standing in, in the path of sinners. I'm kind of listening to what they say at a deeper level. Now I'm actually sitting and have become a scoffer or a mocker. You see this dangerous progression that happens. We've all done this. Let me give you a childish example. It all starts with the longing for that piece of candy. Then it becomes a game of strategy and manipulation to try to get that candy without mom knowing. Once the candy is secured, then a series of lies and denials and cover-ups must be applied to keep the heist under wraps. That's a childish example. But you and I know all too well Nations and families and churches and businesses and countries have been ruined because people walked, stood, and sat around evil. So the immediate exhortation is just don't start walking. I have a, my sidewalk is almost totally collapsed from what it's originally because years ago, a little bitty crack started in it and now I'm gonna have to probably replace the whole thing in a few years. Don't miss the point. The blessed man does not even start by walking in the path of evil. But let's take the second way, the totality of this. These three descriptions, as one commentator says, does not represent three kinds of activities of the wicked. Instead, the parallelism is, a, is synonymous for the totality of evil. And you can see that. What he's saying is the blessed man doesn't walk, doesn't sit, doesn't stand in the presence of evil and evildoers. So regardless of how we unpack this, whether it's a progression or just an example of the totality, the bottom line is the blessed man does not sin. Yikes. What does that do for us? I, I, I'm sinning all the time. How am I to be a blessed man? So who is the blessed man? Is it Abraham? Well, he lied and denied his wife. Was it Moses? Well, he killed an Egyptian. Is it David? Well, he was an adulterer and a murderer. My goodness, is it you? And we're all like, no, it's not me. And at a gathering of Jewish rabbis, one rabbi stood up. He said, my brothers, I have a little book here. It is called the New Testament. I have been reading it, and if I could believe this book, if I, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of Psalm 1 is Jesus of Nazareth. Amazingly, the first verse of Psalm points us to Jesus. Jesus is that blessed man. We're gonna see in just a minute why that's so significant. So then how should we live? We should not live, as this says, in the counsel of the wicked, in the standing in the seat, uh, the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of mockers. That's the disassociation. Now let's see the association. Verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I love that first word, but. It's one of the best words in the Bible because it, it sets up an immediate uh, conjunction contradiction. Uh, Ephesians. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, which is of but God, who is rich in mercy. Here it is. Instead of doing this, but do this. It gives us hope. And notice what he says. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The law here is the word Torah, which actually is just the holistic instruction of God. The word delight. Uh, in, the, in the first service, some of y'all may know Bobby and Kim Livesey. 
uh, let's say, they're getting ready to celebrate an anniversary tomorrow. So I use them as an illustration. I'll just use them again. So let's say tomorrow that Bobby is a good, uh, is a good husband, puts on his best suit, gets some flowers, gets some chocolate that Kim likes, and he goes up to the door and he knocks. He goes, what? Bobby, what are you doing? It's like, it's our anniversary. Why are you doing this? And Bobby says, it's my duty. I, I made a covenant to you several years ago that I would love you and I want to take you to dinner. I mean, how loved is, is, uh, is Kim going to feel that, that he approached his marriage with duty? But what if he said, I couldn't think of anything better to do today. We've been married X amount of years and I love you and it delights me to be with you today. Is she going to go, you're so selfish. I can't believe you want to delight in me. No. She's just gonna relish in the delight. And that's what he's saying here. We don't come to God's word out of duty or to try to accomplish its commands. Obedience is for sure a part of this, but it's an obedience out of delight. A delight to do the will of the Lord. It is the emotional joy of my heart to obey God. And he says, on his instruction, he meditates day and night. Now think about this word, meditate. It, the, the idea is, is, to, is to mull it over, over, and over, and over. But it actually, the, the way the word is used in other connotations, it's the groaning sound of an animal as they eat. I know this is kind of gross, so hang in there with me. If, if, if you grew up around cows, which my, my daughter just married a cattle farmer, so I've been exposed to the, you know, the life of cows more, uh, they do this thing called rumination. They, they ruminate, where they eat grass or hay, then they vomit it up, and they eat it again. And then they vomit it up and eat it again. And the idea is to get the most out of the nutrients as they can, right? I know, it's something like, oh, that's gross. Getting ready for lunch. But that's the idea of meditation, is I eat and I spit it out. I eat it again, I live it out, I live it out. That's the idea of meditation because the people that would have read this, this was, this was an ancient people group. They, they didn't have printing presses and devotionals and books they could just circulate. Everything was oral. Everything was delivered to them verbally. And so they're walking about their day, mulling over, meditating on what they've heard. And there's a sound to that. There's a regurgitation, if you will, of that. And this meditation, the Psalms says, is day and night. It's continual. It's always. It's not just at the seven o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock p.m. devotionals that you might do. It's day and night. The blessed man is constantly chewing on the instructions of God. Now, verse three, he sets the contrasts. And as I read verse three, I want you to let your mind's eye imagine this, okay? Imagine what he's saying. This blessed man who meditates on the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season and its leaf does not wither and all he does he prospers. Can you picture this? My favorite place in Lexington is over at Veterans Park where Hickman Creek runs through and there's huge oak tree there that I love to sit under. But then there's all these sycamores that line the, the creek bed. And I think about this psalm every time I go there. Those are the most beautiful trees. And they're planted by streams of water. 
and they yield their fruit in season. I love that he says that because there are seasons where it's this kind of fruit that I need born. I'm in a season of winter, let's say, a wintry season. I need God to give me patience and endurance. There's fruit for you in that season. I'm in a season of harvest where things are just coming in like crazy. I need God's word there. You, this, this, this man or this woman yields fruit in its season. The leaf does not wither. There's no signs of dying. And whatever you do prospers. You have to understand this imagery is absolutely connected to the word blessed. What God, when God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, what he had in mind was their utter flourishing, just like he has for this tree planted by streams. But verse four is the contrast. The wicked are not so. They're not like that tree. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Picture that. The chaff, when you're, if, you, if I had wheat and I was banging the wheat to get the kernels out, the, the little dusty particles that fall out and just blow away, that's the chaff. You get that imagery? That's not flourishing. That's just blown away. He, so he sets up this contrast. And then verse five, he gives us the therefore. Because there's always a therefore, right? Therefore, if this is true, what do we do? Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is obvious based on the imagery of the tree and the chaff, but this is also scary. What sinners deserve is judgment, and that judgment will be just, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because God is just, he cannot and will not allow a sinner to stand in the congregation of the righteous. So what hope is there if this is the therefore? Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the, wicked, but the way of the wicked will perish. The real question is not do I know God, but does God know me? Um, a few years ago, uh, we were in Scotland and we were visiting our, our missionary partners there and uh, Andy Longway is the, uh, we were, is the pastor we were visiting and he's, you know, he's a, he's a uh, United Kingdom citizen through and through and he loves the queen the Queen Elizabeth, and, and the, 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 the week we were there, she happened to be passing through the train station at Cumbernauld, which is like saying she went through Nicholasville. I don't mean that pejoratively, but it's like, it's just a little city and a place that nobody really knows about. It's Cumbernauld, Scotland. But it was like the Queen of England is gonna come in the royal train with the royal Rolls Royces and she's gonna be in Cumberland. And Andy was beside himself and he was running and he was crying and she, no lie, was from me to Luke, the Queen of England. And we're at this, this little bitty station and Andy's just taking this video and we're crying and, it's, and he got interviewed by the newspaper. And it struck me, I thought, Andy knows the Queen? The Queen does not know Andy. And there's a big difference, Right? And that's what we're talking about here with God. You, you could say you know God, but does God know you? And that comes in to the idea of the blessed man. Who is this blessed man? So the word know here is an intimate knowledge. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We already mentioned that Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. So then, therefore, it is imperative that you find yourself in him. This is the teaching of Scripture. Because if you are not in Christ, then you are out here as chaff 
getting ready to blow away. But if you are in him, you are like a tree planted by streams of water and your leaves will not wither and you will bear fruit in all of the seasons. As Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just days before his death and resurrection, the people cried out, quoting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, astri- they ascribed this blessed man title to Jesus because he indeed is the only one without sin. And as Jesus was breaking the bread, which we're about to do, pouring the wine into the cups to give to his disciples, the gospel writers tell us he pronounced blessing over them. Friend, you've got, you've got to understand this was God in the flesh on earth. The same God who had told Adam and Eve that I bless you and I'm gonna ensure that you are fruitful and multiply. I'm giving you my body and my blood with a blessing. I intend for you to live at at a heightened state of happiness as I accomplish my will on the earth. So may God be pleased to do that in us as well. Amen? All right, let's pray and then I'll transition us to the Lord's Prayer. Father, sometimes it's sometimes too hard to believe that you really desire for us to live at this heightened state of happiness. So much of our world is complicated and dark and depressive, and, and even the weather today feels, feels melancholy. But Lord, despite our circumstances, and even within our circumstances, God, cause us to have a heightened state of happiness. We want to be blessed people. Not so that we can hoard and keep it all to ourselves, but just like what you said to to Abraham, that I will bless you and through you the nations of the world will be blessed. Lord, help us to bend out this blessing to the world. And so now, Jesus, we pray to you, the blessed one of Psalm 1, as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom 